The Absolute Value Podcast is brought to you by Jaybird Sports. High-performance wireless audio for athletes. Power your passion. Before we get started, Jay, I have to tell you something. And, and, and you not only inspired a whole country, but you've inspired me. Uh, I, I know I shared this with you, but... I came to this country with nothing. My parents and I, my little sister, moved here with the hopes of a better life. $400, four suitcases. We moved in with another family of, of four uh, into a 700 square uh, apartment, two bedrooms. And, and we had nothing. We literally lived in one of the bedrooms. They lived in the other one. My parents slept in the bed. My little sister and I slept on the floor. And I remember being on that floor and thinking, this cannot be my life. This is just the beginning. And, and I am inspired by people like you because you have started from the ground up, literally, and built your future with your own hands. And so for that, I appreciate it. And I'm so excited to have Jay Demerit on the Absolute Value Podcast today. Well, that's a good intro. I'll take that any day of the week, Cisco. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. And, you know, <clears throat> I always say that to all the kids. You know, I do a lot of youth program stuff now. And that's the big thing is, just, you know, when's the last time you slept on the floor for something? You know, would you sleep on the floor for something? And that's kind of where it starts. You know, it's important that people understand what it takes of, of a journey that it's not always easy. And, you know, again, I think it's it's always our job to make sure we tell our stories. And, and, and so, again, thank you for, for having me on today to do certainly that. For sure. I appreciate it. Now, let's get started. When you think of Rise and Shine, what do you think? Uh, I think of a journey and a community. I think of... Uh, um, you know, again, both of those things are kind of the ends of, and the beginnings of it. The journey starts with kind of your own version of what you think you can believe in. And, in that, and, and then, then the end is, is, is Rise and Shine has created a full community with the success of the Kickstarter campaign, turning it into a documentary film with $220,000 being donated by the soccer public. Was, was this incredible moment and empowerment moment in my life to know that Rise and Shine is a story that's much bigger than Jay Demerit. It, it, it's a community story that's based on if you have belief and respect and work ethic and positivity, you can do whatever you want. You can, you can achieve whatever you believe in. And, and that's really what Rise and Shine is now. Um, but, you know, again, you don't have the if you don't have the journey, you don't have the, you don't have uh, what it is now. And, and, and that's just a community that's much bigger than me. And when we think of the journey of Jay Demerit, we, of course, think of one of the most recognized defenders in U.S. history, World Cup veteran. You made a name for yourself in England by yourself with nobody, uh, nobody's effort other than your own. You also, as you mentioned, starred on your own documentary, documentary Rise and Shine, uh, the Jay Demerit story. But, but again, I just want to start at the very, very, very beginning. Let's go back to Jay Demerit, the little kid. What was it like growing up as a Demerit in Green Bay, Wisconsin? <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, a, a, again, a kid from Wisconsin. I had a, cor a cornfield across the street from my house, uh, you know, most of most of my life. I had an older brother and, and two parents that were educators. Both my parents were, were gym teachers and coaches. So, you know, I, I was an athlete. I played a bunch of sports. I'd have, like, all the buddies in my gym. You know, when the lights are off, like, all in our remote control cars. You know what I mean? We were Packers fans. We loved football. We loved sports. We loved... You know, we're blue collar kids. You know, we loved working. We, you know, we had jobs ever since we could. You know what I mean? Whether that was chopping wood or, uh, you know, going to, going to work at the high school, cleaning the lockers before the school. Like that was kind of when I was kind of 15, 16. That's when I first started to get my first jobs. But uh, I played a lot of sports. I played basketball in the winter. 
Uh, I wrestled. I, I had um, uh, I played basketball. I ran track. My dad was the high school track coach, so he was a co track coach for 40 years. You know, I was just always around sports. I was always around the big kids. You know, I was sitting on the end of the bench with my dad's teams and stuff like that. And I think sport and, and things were just kind of ingrained in me. You know, my dad's mom is in the Wisconsin Track Hall of Fame as well as my dad. So, you know, like these 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 are the demerit name is more of a track focused thing. But at the end of the day, it was educators and, and, and sports. And, and, you know, what educators and sports really understand is that sports isn't just trophies. It's teamwork and education and communication and leadership and, you know, winning and losing and, and adversity and all these kind of things that really come along with the true essence of sport. And I think, you know, a kid from Wisconsin that had that foundation and I, again, I was very fortunate to have a lot of those things built within me. And when you think of sports, I, I, again, you think of winning, like you said, but to you guys, the Merritt family, it was more than just sports. It was, it was literally a philosophy and a way of life. When you think back of your childhood, growing up with your older brother and your two parents, tell us of maybe one or two attributes that you really, really learned or were ingrained uh, within you um, as your parents were trying to raise you guys. I, I think the first one was um, accountability. Um, you know, my dad wasn't really a yeller unless he had to. You know, if I, if I had, you know, played in the soccer game and I played really well and, and he would say, like, you know, Jay, I thought you did really well up front today, you know, this is what you know. Then the next day, if I was like kind of off my game, or you know, I was just messing around with my buddies and not paying attention, like he, he kind of had this way of letting him, letting me know that I had already set the standard and I wasn't living to it. If you know what I mean, mm -hmm. that's what I mean about accountability. It's not like having a go at people. It's just you know making sure we're we're all consciously setting the bar, and then sticking to it. And and I think my dad did a really good job of that, like pushing me when I needed to be pushed, but still you know, putting me in a situation where I just didn't feel like I was getting yelled at all the time, if you know what I mean. And I think that, 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 that line is something I think as coaches, um, you know, it, it, it's important to ride. And because and, and you don't want to, you don't want to, you want to push, but, but you also don't want to make it not enjoyable. That's truly what, uh, you know, the real essence of what coaching is. So, you know, I grew up with him kind of coaching my teams and, you know, doing a lot of different things like that. So I, I would say accountability was, was something that, that, that my family taught me. And, and then I think the other one was just the, this kind of this sense of adventure. And I say this metaphorically, like, you know, should we go to this or let's do this this weekend? You know, we were a family that kind of did stuff together. And, you know, both my parents were teachers. So we had every spring break off and we'd hop in the van and go to Colorado or, or we'd hop in the van and go to Florida with, for spring break with like a couple of teacher friends and their kids. You know what I mean? Like there were, there was certain times of the year where we really felt like, you know, this kind of togetherness. And I guess that for me was support. That's one thing that my, my family has taught me is, is support. And, uh, you know, again, uh, we're, I was very fortunate to have support because I know support doesn't actually happen that mu as much these days. And, um, you know, I had a family that, that, that really supported each other, trusted each other, tried to do things with each other, you know. And so I would say that would, would be the other big attribute that I really took away is, is that just to be, to be supportive. It's funny to hear you say that because, of course, I know your story and many of our listeners do, too. And, and we can see these attributes that you're mentioning now become so apparent in your later on years as you develop to be the professional athlete that you were. But before we get into the professionalism and, and soccer, 
you you weren't a soccer player. You were not your average kid that started playing soccer at the age of six and and then became th this major athlete. No, you you were somewhat of a mixture athlete, and then you didn't discover soccer until later year. And then you go to you go to college based on your attributes in high school. Tell us a little bit more of that story of finding soccer, going to high school, playing soccer, and then now somehow finding a college to play for. For me, I was you know I was just you know I was a Wisconsin kid. You know, in Wisconsin, and especially growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, football was kind of the major focus. So. You know, soccer wasn't this high performance program in Green Bay. And, and, you know, I was one of those kids that really did play a lot of things. I loved all the sports. I wasn't like this guy that really loved or, or that, that soccer so-and-so called called me or anything like that. It was just really what I did in the summers and in the fall. And I, I was I was uh, uh, playing basketballs in the winter. But, you know, as I got to kind of 16, 17, and I think it's also important to know for people in their journeys you know, when I was 16, 17 years old, I was five, six, 115 pounds. So, you know, I wasn't this like marauding center forward, like, you know, scoring <laughs> goals and like, you know what I mean? Like this guy that was supposed to be the next big thing, you know, like I was this five, six, 115 pound squirm that like worked hard and just had fun doing shit. You know what I mean? Like this was kind of who I was. And, and, but I had enthusiasm. I wanted to work hard and, and, and I met an older coach and he was, uh, he was the ex coach for UW Green Bay. So it's a small division one school in Green Bay. And he was like 65, this old Italian guy, and he, he had retired from UW Green Bay as the coach. He was the first coach to get them in, uh, to an NCAA tournament for the NCAA Division One tournament. And he got kind of bored in his retirement, so he's like, I'm going to coach my local high school team. I ended up being my coach. Towards the end of my high school career, I have one scholarship to UW Green Bay, and I have one basketball scholarship to a Division Three school. So those are the only two scholarships I have on the table at the time. So he takes it upon himself and he calls the U University of Illinois Chicago down in UIC, same conference as U UW Green Bay, but kind of allows me to get out of Chicago or get out of the Green Bay because I wanted to leave town. I wasn't, I wasn't somebody that wanted to kind of stay home. I don't know why, but I just didn't. And uh, so we called the Chicago coach and he said, you know, UW Green Bay is after this guy a little bit, same kind of level. Would you take a chance on him? I think you should. And sure enough, he, he trusted the, you know, the, the old Italian head and said, yeah, okay, I got you. And, and, and I'll give him a minor, minor scholarship. So I had a $2,000 a semester scholarship, out-of-state tuition. So I was still paying money to get to, to go to college. But for me, you know, and for my parents, you know, that was just a victory. You know, like we put a lot of work into youth sports and there's a lot of support and parents. And, you know, for me, it was like that, that mix of like, okay, I want to challenge myself. But, you know, it's cool to get a scholarship and you're, it's a nice, like, it's a nice reward, if you know what I mean, of, of a journey. And, and, and my parents were, were, were stoked and we um, even up a little bit, you know. So that was kind of like this whole thing. Let's get out of the big, let's get out of the little town and go to the big city. And Chicago presented that to me. And they had a design degree that I wanted to go to school for because uh, I have kind of like an art and design background as well. So kind of it really fit the bill and it allowed me to put myself in a much bigger pond with a lot better players. But, you know, there's something in me that was always just wanting to, you know, I like the mix. I like challenging myself against people and things that uh, are a little bit challenging or, or a little bit beyond my, my, my belief system at the time. So you know, call it, call it getting out of your comfort zone is kind of where I feel comfortable. <laughs> well, and you got out of your comfort zone, not only because you left your city, but also the, the average U.S. soccer fan who knows Jay DeMera, the defender of the U.S. men's national team, knows him as a defender. But the reality is you were a lethal striker in high school uh, and you literally were received the scholarship to play as a striker. However, that's not how the story goes. You're then asked to leave your comfort zone again uh, and become a, a center back. What was yes. that experience <laughs> yeah. like of, of making that transition complete opposite? 
we'll call that the double uncomfortable comfortable zone <laughs> <laughs> yeah not only was i fish out of a small fish in a very big pond i was uh my first preseason tournament, we were in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, I was a freshman. They were even talking about redshirting me um, as a forward, uh, just so they give me some time to adjust to that kind of level. And then uh, Jacksonville tournament, there was a red card and an injury to, to the two de- two defenders on the team, and we played a three back marking system. So again, I was just, I was just a good athlete. I was a pretty good competitor, but that was about it. But the, my coach kind of just saw that, and and we didn't have any players. And he just kind of pulled me aside after the training the next day and he says you know have you ever thought about playing defender before and you know i'm a kid from wisconsin who just wants to play and, and i'm a freshman so i better just listen and i also like you know i i also know what coaches are so if a coach is, is telling me that they i might be good at something that's kind of his job <laughs> right <laughs> you, you know you know what i mean if you trust your coaches for sure uh, but but again you have to you have to be in a mindset to be able to trust somebody so again when you have support you're able to do that and, and, and again, I, so again, I moved to Chicago with a support mindset and coachable. And, and I just thought those three things, yes, I want to play. Yes, I'm a freshman. And I just, I just, I want to listen. And number two, I, I, I'm into taking chances and saying, yes, if you coach think that I could do it, sure, I'll try. <laughs> and literally, literally, the arrest is history. I mean, yeah. And, and, of- and literally, that, the, the, the end of that sentence goes, and within three games, I knew that for 18 years, I'd been playing out of position. <laughs> That's insane. And not only at a position, but at, a, at the highest level possible, which, you know, credit to that coach. In fact, you should probably send him a check or two here uh, to, to thank him for that decision of moving you to the back. <laughs> now I do all the time. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. good. Sending flowers every year for his birthday. I, I, I think he deserves them. Now we think of you know we think of your college career and and you made a name for yourself from the ground up. I mean nobody literally knew who you were, uh, and if they knew you, they knew you as a striker. And now here comes a kid who uh, is becoming a very predominant central central defender. What was it like? when you were um, out trying to be scouted by MLS teams and, and, and they were not grasping the concept of Jay Demerit, uh, what were some of the things that gave you the fire to maybe prove them wrong? Um, I mean, there's a couple things. One, one of course, is, is just I understood my story. And I think when you understand your story, you don't take things personally when you don't get picked. And, and you know, I come from a small town. I, wasn't, I never even tried out for my ODP team, let alone make it. You know, you know what I mean? So, right. you know, if you look at like, if I'm looking at, you know, end of my college career, how do you play with the big guys? You make NCAA tournaments, you get honorable mention, all of Americans. But then in three years, I was only the time I've been on that radar. So then it's like, okay, what about the dude that was like a U16 Gatorade All-American and now plays at Stanford and now is graduating? Who's going to get picked with the 40 picks that they actually have at the draft at that time? You know, you know what I mean? Like who's getting picked? pretty much nine times 9.9 times out of 10 not me i know that so again like i kind of just knew that and and, and what call that like humility in the journey or humility to say like i know where i'm at and and to be conscious of to say like i know that there's guys in front of me um did i believe that i was as good as those guys yeah but when i didn't get picked i understood and that and and again i didn't take it personally i was i was i was i was a little bit upset because people will lie to you and they'll say Oh, you're going to get picked, and this is going to be at, and, and and it kind of gives you a false sense of hope. And I feel like this is what we're doing with youth nowadays. Like we're giving them these false sense of hopes. Like you have to sign up for this academy, and you sign up for like RSL Academy, and you're 14, and we're telling these kids that they're going to be like Lionel Messi. And it's right. like, why are we why are we doing that? You know what I mean? And I think I kind of fell for that a little bit too, playing PDL for the Fire Reserves, and then we're training with the Fire, and everyone's saying, "Oh yeah, you might get picked by the Fire," and then all of a sudden it doesn't happen. 
And then, you know, again, that's part of it. But again, I didn't take that personally. I I, I thought that I, I didn't think I, would get, I was going to get drafted. I thought, uh, you know, I might be on the outskirts, but I was a little bit disappointed. I didn't really get any walk-on trials. They didn't even ask me if I wanted to come. I, I had a couple like Milwaukee Rampage, which is like the second division. And then um, I had my buddy who was going to England and he's like, I'm going to England, dude, you want to come? And I kind of did my research a little bit. I was, I'm a pretty adventurous guy. So um, I thought, you know what? I got to go. I got to do, do it the hard way. I got a design degree in my pocket. If I want to go make money, I'll just go get a, get a design job. But if I, you know, if I'm going to make 18 grand a year, getting sewn up in a four year walk on tryout with the Milwaukee Rampage, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, not exactly like the future that I was looking for. You know, you know what I mean? Like at the time. So if, if I'm going to do it the hard way, I might as well go to England, get some adventure and go in a place where that, you know, again, I always say that the light at the tunnel was way brighter. Yes, I knew what the what, what the jungle was. I knew how hard it was going to be, but who cares? I got to do it the hard way anyway. It's insane. Listen, as a father, I have four kids. And as a father of four, if my oldest told me he's moving to Europe with a backpack, his cleats, and a buddy, uh, <laughs> I would probably lock him up to to, to the basement. Uh, but but credit, you know, credit to your parents, credit to you, because you knew your journey. And you said something key earlier. You knew your story. Um, and this was part of your story. So walk us through, you pack your bags, you get on a plane, you go to Europe, uh, you guys then start mapping out how you're going to, how you're going to go about your trials. And well, yeah, I think the first thing was I had to work. So I, I had, I had jobs. I was working as a bartender, a server and uh, painting houses and, and saving up some cash so I could have some rent and not rent some sp like money when I got there to give me some months to try out for teams and stuff. So we, we first traveled uh, Europe for the first two and a half months. We went to Germany, France, would rent bikes in the cities, and we had a map of all the training grounds in the second and third divisions. And uh, we would we would like rent these bikes in Amsterdam and like drive out to like uh, like this third division, like Den Haag, like stadiums and stuff. And it was just just kind of cool adventure. And, I, and we didn't really believe that we were going to make it. We were just going to try. And, and, and in the end, we ran out of money, but we went to Germany and to Belgium and got to see soccer culture in Europe and and we, as we kind of landed back to the UK, which we really knew that that was going to be our longer term setup, but it kind of just got to this whole idea. Like we were playing the 12th division. Okay. So then, let me just paint this beautiful picture. For you. <laughs> <laughs> we were playing in the 12th division. Uh, I was making uh, 40 pounds in an envelope, which is like 60 bucks. What I always tell people from from America uh, that don't really understand what it's like from a fanaticism or culture side in the UK, I always say like if you take Wisconsin for instance, and you uh, you put 96 professional football teams in Wisconsin, and you split them into four divisions, and and through and there's two 70,000 seat stadiums in Green Bay, and one wears green and the other wears yellow, and the fans of Green Bay hate each other, and then and then within within three and a half hours one way and then down to the other there is 96 professional teams and there's about 16 different accents in between two put that all in a, in a melting pot and then put that into like the only thing that you care about in your life and then you have english soccer and and, and but again even the 12th division guys are, are getting paid But again, I love that about it. I love that chaos. I'm gonna get me in the mix, and, and then we'll we'll, we'll 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 have a go at it. You know what I mean? That's kind of the, what it is. So I, you know, I had this kind of wild man mentality, kind of renegade spirit of like, all right, let's just go. Put me in the mix, and we'll see what happens. And because it is so concentrated, the vision side of that is maybe I'll get seen quicker.
did you genuinely believe that you were going to make it when you were there in that mix of it all? Or was it more of the experience? No, I, I think it's both. And I think you live and learn. And, and again, this is what I mean about the journey, about like really accepting the good, the bad, and the ugly as long as you're moving forward. And I think that was always my point. It's, it's, a, it's a, every time you look back, and if you do it with true consciousness and humility, you, you know when you're doing well. You know when you're not doing well. You know if it's working and you know if it doesn't. You know, because you're listening, you're asking questions. You know, I'm playing again. For instance, I'll give you an example. So by the end of that season, I've now started. So I started on the bench on the 12th division team. By the end of the season, I was starting. But our forward at the time was this dude named Michael Mika. And he was uh, a Welsh international. He played for QPR. Um, and, and he would just been kind of laying, you know, he was getting 400 pounds a game to go play like 12th division once a week. You know what I mean? Like he'll go down and pick up his cash. But again, he knows that level. So QPR was like second and third division at the time. And you know, all of a sudden I'm playing on the same field as this guy. And by the end of the season, he's going, Jade, what's up, dude? You got it like an agent or, you know, like you're getting pretty good. Like, I really I like what you, you pass your, you know, out of the back again. Cause during the season, I'm asking him, I'm like, yo, Mike, you know, what should I be working on right now? If I'm going to play for QPR tomorrow, what do I need to work on? Like, judge me. You know what I mean? Like, again, mm -hmm. that's humility, but it's that it's still like asking questions to people that have been there. That's mentorship. Right. And so, like, but, but you got to ask. You can't just have a let a mentor mentor. You know, it's part of the, you know, the kid or, or the person being mentored to ask the right questions. You know what I mean? So that was always my job, too, is, is, is I was unafraid of, to ask questions and say, well, Mike, am I good enough? Do you think I can make it? And if all those answers were yes, and then I'm getting a reputation and I'm getting third division tryouts, which I got at the end of that season for a team called Oxford United. You know, that for me was progress. I, I, I went to Oxford United, as famously the story goes, I went up there, spent all my money renting a car, not, or, you know, driving up there and, 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 and me and Karen, the guy I went with, we were both invited to this trial. We got put on, we, we were you know, all kitted up, running over the warm-ups, and we, we were on the bench until the 87th minute, and we went in for three minutes, and then they're like, yeah, we'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing to see, but they still call you. Yeah, I think I pushed, I pushed up the defense once, and that's it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So it's like, but again, you know, the world, if you, again, if you look at perspective and knowing your story, your perspective says, oh, shit, I had my shot, I didn't make it. That was my chance. I got that third division trial, and I failed. But reality says, I was playing in the 12th division in the beginning of the season. Now I'm getting third division tryouts, be it fail or not. That's progress. That's me going, wow, keep doing what you're doing because maybe next time you'll actually get 87 minutes instead of three, and then you can give, give it a real shot. So you know, that was kind of my mindset of it all. And as long as I was moving forward, being conscious of the fact and listening, and by listening, I mean like actually listening uh, while seeing, but also asking the right questions and listening to people's feedback. We'll be right back. Introducing Vista. Vista are Jaybird Sports' premier totally wireless Bluetooth headphones. The lightest, most compact, and most advanced headphones I've ever made. With industry-leading battery life, IPX7 waterproof rating, and US military rugged compliance certification. Go get yourself a pair at jbrisport.com. Support our sponsor. It sounds super fun. I mean, if I if, if I were your age um, and single, because uh, at at your age, while you were doing this, I had I had actually had one kid already. But it, <laughs> but if if I were your age and single, I would love to do it. However, reality is it wasn't all peachy. It was it was it was tough. It was difficult for you. And 
And if we can recap this story, you had, I mean, 40 pounds is n- no money, especially in, in, in London. So you had no money, no quote unquote real job, no pro team to show for, for your parents, who I'm sure were, uh, you know, they were still supporting, but they were trying to, I mean, they were worried. They were putting some heat on you. What what was it that that attribute or something that gave you the motivation to not give up? Because most people would say, you know what, the, the easier route is just to go home back to the states and, and, and get a design job. But but something gave you the motivation to say, I'm going to keep going. What was it? Uh, I think I think the biggest thing is belief, uh, and the second thing is the positivity. Because you know, like first you got to believe. If you don't believe you can do it, like it, it for me, I I find it an incredible waste of time. And, and so if you don't believe in something, just I, I always say the kids, you know, like the, the pillars we work from at Rise and Shine is the first one. And these are in order is belief, because if you don't believe, don't put in the energy that's required to actually make it happen. And then the, the end of that is, is positivity, because within the journey and the work, you're going to find adversity. Adversity will not just find you. It'll, it'll happen 100 percent of the time. 100 percent. It's a guarantee. It's just a matter of when. And and, and again, the, the adversity will always change. But. At the end of the day, when, when that adversity is in, is in your face, you know, what do you do with it? Do you just look it in the face and turn around? Do you look it in the face and, 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 and you know, kick it out of the way? Do you, what do you do? What do you do? Do you go around it? Do you get smart and find another way? Like, again, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's positivity that gets you through that. And so I, I think the belief side w- was, was the main ingredient. And then the positivity when those set adversities would happen, I was just like, hey, at least I'm here. At least I'm trying something different. At least I'm in a third division team now. At least I'm making sixty bucks instead of forty. You know what I mean? There's, there's <laughs> right. ways you can stay positive in all in all scenarios. And again, in the end, if you really want to stay positive, at least I'm here. At least I have my health. At least I'm a kid that's able to come over here and try. You know what I mean? Like, let's get real broad. If you really want to talk about what what you get get you out of bed in the morning, uh, you know, just, just those types of you know you know appreciations alone, but. You know, for me, it was just always those reminders and those things really helped me get through. And it was that gratefulness and, and positivity that led you to a, a pivotal point in your in your quote-unquote dream and career. You find yourself playing Watford um, and uh, they find themselves being interested in you. Please tell us the story because I can't tell it as good as you can. <laughs> well, Wat- Watford came about, I was playing in the ninth division the next preseason. So I'd had a year in, year in the 12th division under my belt. Trials were starting to come in a little bit, but the coach of my 12th division went to the ninth division team and he says, come, come for the, for preseason. We're playing against Watford who was in the first division at the time in a preseason friendly. He's like, train with us. We'll play that game. We'll see what happens. So I'm stoked. I get out there and I'm playing in the game. And, and, and thankfully they had just come back from a, a Spanish uh, preseason cup and they had won it. And so they put the first team out again. It's, it was Northwood. It was the team, the ninth division team. It was um, not far from Watford. And they had the year before signed a forward from Northwood who ended up scoring 15 goals that year. And so as a thank you, they, they're like, we're going to come back next preseason and give a, and give you guys a friendly. So it kind of packs these little small 12th to ninth division stadiums, couple, a couple hundred people there, et cetera, et cetera. But I got to play in that game. And thankfully they put up the first team. And after the, after the game, um, the coach just said, who's, who's that kid at the back? And uh, again, I think timing is also part of the story uh, always. And, and, uh, they didn't have any money. Uh, Watford had just, uh, come down from the Premier League a couple years earlier and lost a bunch of money. They were almost to bankruptcy. They didn't have money to buy new players. So they needed to kind of find these diamonds in the rough. So the guy was like willing to take a chance on me. Uh, I played in that game. They, they took me on trial. I went there for two weeks, got a couple reserve games in, and then they kind of, he, 
he invited me to the stadium the next week and he and he says hey we're, we're i hear you've been training with the reserve team it's our last preseason friendly uh why don't you come to the stadium tomorrow we'll get you we'll try to get you involved so there i am i've just been training with the first with the second team you know i haven't even been training with the first team yet for watford I've just, but again things are going pretty well i'm getting a couple second team games in their own little league and I come into the stadium and it's the first time I've been in the Watford stadium. I'd never, again, I'd been in the training ground, but that's it. And I walk into the stadium and, and, and he has me in the starting lineup with 10 guys <laughs> that I'd never, that I'd never even played with in training, let alone played with in front of 25, 30,000 people. So again, that was kind of, again, the next kind of big moment was like, Whoa. <laughs> you know, I, and again, I famously ran to the bathroom stall and had a word with myself. Um, <laughs> Because I could, I, 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 I kind of like, I, I got hit with a little bit of an uppercut because I wasn't quite ready. And, you know, these are normally things that I should be prepared for. <laughs> right. As far as, as what he was telling, you know, again, that was where I immediately went to the mindset of like, what's he doing? And I went projection and I went, oh, what's he doing? What if I mess up? He should have told me. And I started to go like inward. But I very quickly said, no, like, this is your chance, dude. Like, what are you talking about? This is, this is exactly what you've been waiting for. So now it's about time you you know you, you take it on and you say this is this is I don't care if you've not played with ten people this is your chance to show twenty five thousand that you you deserve to be here, and so that's really where my mindset in these kind of big moments are, has always been trying to stay on the positive side, knowing that knowing the story, understanding that you know this is the moment. So why are you scared? This is why you're here. This is this is why it was purposeful, and uh, so then I then I kind of shifted to that, played the whole ninety minutes, and after the game. Coach uh, Ray Lewington at the time calls me in his office and he says, what'd you think? And I said, uh, I think you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we laughed and, and he just said, listen, sometimes at this level, you got to, you got to throw people into the deep end and, and, and see if you can swim. And uh, tonight you swam. He, he said, you know, I didn't tell you because sometimes you, you, you just got to know. And, and these are ways we do that. So, uh, he, yeah, he said, do you have an agent? I lied and said I did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but, but again, that same, the pro that I was telling you about, uh, Michael Mika, the Welsh guy, he was like, I got an agent, buddy. I'll just have him do your first contract. So I signed my first deal. It was 21, 25,000 pounds for a one year deal with Watford. who was in the first division at the time. So you finally achieve your dream and in a very fashionable way, but the reality is you had sacrificed so much. Your parents had sacrificed so much, everybody around you. What was it? What was that feeling like to finally put ink to paper and say, I am a professional athlete. I guess it's, it's one of those things where you, when it happens, you still, you almost don't believe it because of the hardship, because of what you go through when no one's watching, because, you know, you believed in yourself before anyone else believed in you. You know what I mean? Like that kind of process is, if you don't absorb it right, I think it's dangerous. Um, again, I, and what I mean by that is I, that's when comfort zones start to get real. You know, it's like, oh, all of a sudden you're at the end of this thing and you make a pro and you sign a contract. You're like, yes, I made it. But, you know, the mindset for me wasn't that. It was, yes, you made it. And now you got 365 days to prove that you can do it again. <laughs> right, right. And earn another one. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's kind of where, again, you are, I, I'm a big believer in celebrating your rewards. I, I, again, I, 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 your accomplishments in, along the journey, good, bad, and ugly, should always be celebrated. But I also think that... Um, you know, I, I'm always of the mindset that improvement is key in all walks of life and your life gets better when you improve. And I, and I, and I think, you know, that first year at Watford, I really, I really kept that mindset. It was lots of questions, lots of training after training. And, 
you know, really trying to take it upon myself to, to really feel like I belong there. Cause I definitely didn't. When I walked into that first locker room as this unknown renegade American, like I was like, what is going on? <laughs> these guys, these guys don't respect me. They don't know me. They don't care about me. And again, that would be ego to think that I, that they should. But, but again, I, I wanted to make sure I just, I sat in the room and absorbed it. And that's kind of what a lot of that first season was about. Well, I'm glad to hear that you did not just say, yes, I made it. And that was it. You were willing to put in the work because you realized this is just another stepping stone to a great journey. Now, second season comes about because your first season, you guys were still in championship. Second season. Now you guys are at the brink of re relegation. You guys get a new manager. And then somehow you guys find yourselves in a playoff match to potentially be promoted to the premiership or premier league as we know it. What was one of the most important principles that you learned from that 2005 and 2006 Watford team and what that new coach had installed in you guys? It's a match worth millions of pounds, but it's also a match worth millions of memories. It is Leeds United against Watford for a place in the Premiership. Well, you know, the, the quick story of that is, is is the thing called this circle mentality. So that's, I guess, in the end game, teamwork is what I learned the most of that season. And what I mean about spe uh, uh, circle mentality, this is one of the talks I give um, to, to certain groups of people and especially businesses. And, and, and I call it the circle mentality because when my second season, we, we were tipped to go down. So tipped to go down to the third division. And uh, uh, we just survived relegation my first rookie year. And we hired a new coach called A.D. Boothroyd, and he was 34 years old. He was the youngest manager in the whole professional leagues in Europe, 34. He came, we hired him from the youth direction position at, for Leeds United. So the guy had zero coaching experience in his life professionally. And, he, and so he comes in his first day and he, and he goes, with this room, by the end of this season, we're going to be promoted to the Premier League. And we had like five guys in the room were older than him. Like most most of the guys I kind of looked at, like who is this young cowboy who's never even coached a game in his life at that level? Saying this, but he did this really cool stuff, and, and, and he just he started to instill this belief in us. Where like every day after training, he would he would put his arm around a guy and walk him around the field. It was just communication. He would talk about it, what we want out of the, out of the season, what kind of players we think we are, what he thinks of us, and what our families are like, or whatever. And it just started to create this internal connection within his man management skills. From there, we would do this thing called the circle mentality. So every Sunday after a Saturday game, anyone that had to do with the game day, first team, second team, physios, uh, you know, uh, uh, sports psychologists, assistant coaches, everybody, anyone that had to do with the game day would come into the meeting room on the Sunday after uh, Sunday morning after the Saturday games, because games are played on Saturdays. And, and they would all, all the 30 chairs would be in a circle. And every game, we would talk about what happened. Good, bad, ugly, again, so you're talking stories, you're, you're watching game tape, you're, you're writing down like 30 pieces of paper on the wall and you got to write down under that person's name what they did best that game and what they did worse. And it opened lines of communication, it opened this whole kind of like how to, how to reveal character in a controlled setting. And within that became this whole, I get that guy now. I know what he gets upset about. I understand where his, his, his triggers are. I understand how to get the most out of that guy. You know what I mean? Sometimes it was funny. Sometimes guys wanted to punch each other in the face. <laughs> you know, you know, again, it, it changed every week, but that's what was interesting. And that and that, that really is, it was, was what I learned of that season. Because by the end of that season, we all believed in each other. The group was much stronger together. All of us knew what we brought to that table. And in the end, we crushed Leeds 3-0 in front of 78,000 people. I scored the first goal, got man of the match. And before we knew it, we were Watford and we were, we were, we were Premier League soccer players. And I'm Jay Demerit on the field giving an interview in front of 78,000 with a man of the match ball. Another corner, another threat from Watford. 
Ashley Young delivers, and Jay Demerit puts Watford in front. The American makes his mark in the playoff final. Now you had done it all. I mean, you, you literally moved to Europe. You 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 start playing a pub league, twelfth division, ninth division. Now championship. Now you find yourself in the Premiership or Premier League. Uh, you you done it all. But the one thing that you hadn't done was the United States men's national team. What did it mean to you to be to get to receive that call from the national team? Uh. I mean, it's a culmination. Again, you can think of moments where, like, the past and all of the history really kind of hit you hard, and that's when. It's like, when you start to get asked to represent your country, you feel it, again, it's much bigger than you. Um, and, 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 you know, when you come from the stories that I came from and, and, and lived the journey that I did, you appreciate that journey even more. And, you know, it makes you feel American. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you know honesty. The story of Jay Demera is not just continue of rise and into this beautiful scenic mountain. No, there was some there was some hardships along the way. I know that you had a full cornea transplant six months before the World Cup, and the potential of you missing the ultimate dream of playing a World Cup could be slashed in half and not and not happen. Tell us about that story and, and what gave you the motivation to pile through this new trial that you have experienced. Well, that well, the first thing that comes to mind with that story is like, it's it, it's life as well. It's like just when you think you got life figured out, it just shows up and punches you in the face. That's that's kind of what you know life continues to do to all of us, I guess, at times. But for me, it, it was one of those things. You know, you do all this work and you finally get an opportunity to play, and, and you get your games against Spain, Brazil, Italy, and the Confederations Cup. You're a starter now. You know, again, if you think about what the six years of that journey of like how I got that. And now I earned my way to the right to be in a USA starter. Six months before the World Cup, we're about to qualify, and uh, I go to training one day, and, and, and we—I had wear contacts at the time, and I, I went to training. We 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 were away game to Plymouth the next day, and I went on, on the bus. I get to the training ground the next day, my uh, in Plymouth because we had a game that night. My eyes all pink and a little bit annoyed, and I go to the eye doctor, and he says, "Yeah, you got a scratch in your cornea." If you can play in those floodlights tonight, play. So I go to the I go to the game. I can't play in the floodlights. My my head is pounding. I'm trying to do headers with the goalkeepers like been pregame, and I just I can't do it. I can't do it for an hour and a half. I know that. So I think the bad thing is is that I'm starting to feel like this intense pressure in my brain. And by the time I, we got back from Plymouth that night, my eyes had swollen swollen shut, and I and I couldn't like breathe out of my nose. And and I so I I got rushed to the emergency room, and they pried my eye open, and I had a. Uh, a really bad infection in that corneal scratch in my eye and um, basically was eating my eyeball. <laughs> oh my gosh. And uh, um, I was a race against time. I had to do this really strong eye drop uh, every hour on the hour, like a recurring alarm for, uh, for 36 hours. So I had to stay up for a day and a half in excruciating pain to try to kill the infection and save as much of my eye as possible. And uh, within 36 hours, I lost 70% of my eye tissue. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and so I was completely blind in my right eye. It looked like I was seeing through like a stained fog glass window. Um, so now here we are. So we're six months away from the World Cup. 
and I'm I'm fully blind. I I I I, I can't even think about playing, let alone if I'm going to be the best player and one of the best players in the world. So it was kind of like this whole like check of like okay now what <laughs> you've, you've been through some adversity but this is crazy you know this is just a different kind of one yeah you're you're a, you're a Watford player you're a Premier League player which is awesome but at the end of the day like you're about to play in a World Cup and now you're blind you might not even play soccer again let alone play in a World Cup so it was kind of this whole idea of okay let's reset thankfully again we're very blessed with with good doctors and I, I searched for a bunch of surgeons that were willing to take it on and they said yeah I, I found one he was the dude that did the fighter pilots for the government in, in London. <laughs> and uh, so he's like, I'll do it. You know, he's this dude. He was like this awesome guy. And he's like, let's, let's formulate a plan. So we had three months. He did the full corn replacement, thankfully, from the, a, coronial, a corneal bank in North Carolina. I, I shipped me one because it's the biggest corneal bank in the world. And he shipped it to London. And uh, I got a corneal replacement. Uh, and so, so basically, they just replaced the front of, of the window of the eye. So they don't replace your eyeball. They just take the window right. of your eye. If your eye was like a gooey thing with a with a clear plastic shell, you take out the window and then you replace the window. So that's what a corneal replacement is. So that I I I played with that in a stitch, a full starburst stitch around the whole uh, of of the circle of the front of my eye. Uh, I played with a protective contact, and 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 every week I would go in, uh, and they would adjust my stitch and make me see better by by pulling my stitch with my eye open. <laughs> oh my goodness! And literally, that's how you regain your eyesight. Yeah. And so I was there. Well, the first month I just sat in the dark and you want to talk about visualization. This is really when I exercised a lot of visualization because the first month I couldn't go outside. I couldn't look at a TV. I couldn't look at a laptop because if your eye gets upset, it starts to water and then your other eye starts to water and then your nose starts to run and then it upsets the whole process of healing. So I just sat in the dark literally for a month and I had a, uh, I had a, uh, uh, stationary bike, you know, those bikes, I had one like delivered to my house. And the only time I would leave the house, I'd put an eye patch on and I'd go to the eye doctor for the stitch adjustment. And then I'd come home and sit in the dark again. <laughs> Did you ever think I'm not playing this world cup? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I thought of that, but again, you control what you can control every day is better than the next. And if that forward is there, then, then, then let's keep moving. Let's keep pushing. And that's what happened. You know, I, 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 thankfully I had, again, I had a good support system. So once I was able to start playing and get my fitness back after three months, my coach, Malky McKay, who I played with and won that uh, uh, English championship final with as a center back partner, he was like, he was the manager at the time. So he's like, you go play. Like if you got a chance to make a world cup, I don't care if you're unfit. I don't care if you suck, get out there. So, you know, those types of things worked in my favor. And in the end, I, 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 I may, I just by the skin of my teeth made the 23 man squad because Bob Bradley, you know, like, and this is why I'll always respect Bob Bradley is, you know, Bob Bradley didn't have to take me. Bob Bradley believed in me and what I brought to that team. And, you know, I wasn't a popular name at that time. I was just starting to learn to have a reputation on that team. And Bob stuck with me. He, you know, he didn't let that injury be something that would prove to be negative. You know, he's like, when that crazy thing happened, you were my guy and you're still my guy now. So that really helped give me the confidence to come back into that group even though i couldn't see <laughs> for sure well and all of my friends who've been coached by bob they they all say the same thing bob is a believer uh in grit uh more than talent and he believes in the human being rather than what they can do and he can get the what they can do out of them uh with great coaching and, and that's the reason why bob is who he is in our in our culture in our soccer culture now you play a World Cup, then you have an amazing career in Major League Soccer, and you hang up the boots and you're retired. But your journey as a motivational leader hasn't stopped there. Why don't you tell us about Rise and Shine uh, Captain's Camps? 
Well, Rise of China, again, famously, um, is, is a documentary film uh, that was uh, paid for by the passionate soccer community on Kickstarter donations in 2011, just after the World Cup. And, uh, you know, again, thousands of donors from around the world donated in making my story a documentary film called Rise and Shine, the Jade Mara story. And, you know, again, for me, that was the empowerment moment to know that this story is way bigger than me and that if people that I don't even know are going to throw fundraisers at their churches and schools and for their youth teams just to say, like, this story needs to be told. Like, when that happened and that, like, really empowered me to say, I got to get out there and tell it. So with Rise and Shine, the documentary, uh, Rise and Shine, the charity, and Rise and Shine, the youth program was born. And then further on, a couple years later, Rise and Shine, the music festival was born. So basically, I've created a community ecosystem that, that is three things. A youth program well, versus the documentary. So that's, that's how people learn about the story. But where we are now in the mountains of British Columbia is it's a youth program and our youth program is called Captain's Camps. And it's a mix between professional mentors in all walks of life. So chefs and entrepreneurs, I don't know if the listeners are, are, are familiar with Masterclass, but it's like this whole idea of like professionals teach. So Gordon Ramsay teaches you how to cook, you know, uh, you know, Lady Gaga teaches you how to sing. So it's like the pros of the pros coach. So my whole concept of the youth program is that we take influencers and people that are highly professional in all walks of life, and they're the mentors for the crew. So these kids, but 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 they also mix in the skill set of why the kids want to join in the program. So there's soccer right now. The two programs we have are soccer program and the DJ program. So we get for the, or the DJ camps. You know, we get DJs are my friends that play like Red Rocks or Coachella, and we come up and they're the coaches. So just like in 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 soccer camp. So again, you know, I, I met you through Lauren Sesselman uh, on the women's side, or you know, even um, you know Brian Ching or all these other people. They come up and, and they're the coaches. So the coaches that are pro in that thing, they coach. And then once a day, we have a mentor that's professional at something else that comes and joins in on the program. So they give a little talk and then we always practice whatever it is that the mentors preach. So if it's a chef, we'll cook. If it's a designer, we'll design something. If it's an athlete of a different sport, we'll try to play that sport. So we just try to like always walk a mile in the other mentor's shoes just so we can plant a seed and say, look at what other cool people are doing. Look at what highly successful mindsets create in all walks of life. Because at the end of the day, we are watching and learning through youth and we are not trying to tell them to be LeBron James. Cause if they were going to be LeBron James as a 14 year old kid, I would know already. <laughs> <laughs> right, I agree. I'm not trying to tell you that you're going to be LeBron James. I'm trying to tell you that if you believe in yourself and you work hard and you learn from people in front of you, you have a shot at to do whatever you want. And that's the mentality we need to install in every single kid in our youth who we come in contact with because they may not be LeBron James, but they may be a great doctor who may do a cornea transplant as a professional athlete one day, right? And, and we need these people to continue to grow and become who they want to become and they believe they can become. 100%. And then, you know, for me, that's that's really the idea. And then so I've run the physical program with hundreds of kids over the last five years up here in the mountains. But I could, you know, it was hard. It was hard to really to scale that. There's only one me and there's only so many mentors. So the whole idea was now we've taken and turned it into a digital program. So we've, we've, we've recently partnered with EA uh, and we're creating a, a Rise and Shine learning app for, for teenagers. And it's going to be gamified learning of like learning from online lessons from the pros geared at teens with like challenges built in. And then in the end, they're going to win, win and earn prizes like Assigned, assigned memorabilia experiences with said pros, tickets to games, concerts, but they earn it by watching TED Talks, learning about other people's stories, doing challenges like TikTok, but actually with meaning. And, uh, and, and, and so that's what Rise and Shine is becoming now. It's becoming a digital program and a learning program for all teens to gamify learning. So before we end, I have two questions for you. If you could look back now, what would you tell all those people who doubted you and rejected you? 
that proving people wrong should never be the goal. Proving yourself right is a much higher purpose. Now, in contrast, if you could write a letter to Jay Demerit in 2003 as he's about to, about to board that plane to Europe, kid with a backpack, uh, what would you tell him? I would say the journey begins here. If you believe in yourself, if you respect the people and the places around you, if you create a work ethic that gets you out of bed every day, within that getting out of bed every day work ethic, you will find adversity and it's the positivity that will get you through that. Um, then the journey will be the reward. Thank you so much, brother, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I think a lot of people are going to be inspired by your story. I uh, thank you, Cisco. I, again, I, you know, again, we're only as good as the platforms and the ways that we can tell our story. So thank you for allowing me to tell my story. And uh, we will definitely be in touch to rise and shine again. That's for sure, brother. For sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Absolute Value Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. This episode was powered by Felcrum, a full-service sports agency. All rights reserved. <laughs>